Oh, hey. Welcome to episode two. I'm glad you're here. Um, they didn't kick me off after episode one, so I'm back. You're listening to Never To Be Seen Again. My name is Laura, and of course, I am your host. Uh, I just want to take a minute real quick to say thank you to everyone who listened to episode one. I'm so very appreciative of everyone's support. Uh, I really didn't think that there would be so many people that would want to hear me talk about missing persons cases, um, but I'm glad that you do. Um, and I hope that you keep listening uh, because as long as you keep listening, uh, I'll just keep talking to myself every week and recording it and we'll both get something out of it. Uh, I just want to remind everyone to follow or subscribe and rate if that's an option on whatever platform you listen on. Uh, if you're not really familiar with podcasts, those things really affect how much notoriety this podcast gets. And notoriety, of course, means more listeners. Also, uh, if my listening base increases... I definitely do not have a problem with creating social media pages for the podcast um, where I would be able to um, post links and photos for each week's case uh, or each week's episodes and uh, the listeners could discuss the, the week's cases. Um, so this week I have a couple of really good cases. Um, I have plenty of information and they are indeed mysteries um, so I don't want to waste too much time and we can just get right into it um, this week we're in Idaho and uh, trust me we're not here to dig up some delicious potatoes we're here strictly to dig up some cold missing persons cases so our first case this week has plenty of information online and it's going to take me a, um, a little while to tell you this story uh, just because I had so much information but I promise you it's good so just stick with me. Miss Stephanie Lynn Crane or Steffi as she is also known is in the Doe Network under case number 780DFID in NamUs, she is case number MP2081. Uh, she also has a profile on the Charlie Project. Uh, Stephanie was born on September 28th of 1984, and she was last seen on October 11th of 1993 in Chalice, Idaho. Steffi was nine at the time of her disappearance. She would be 35 now. She is a white female who was four foot two inches and between 65 and 85 pounds when she went missing. She had brown, thick, wavy hair and blue eyes. She also had a cowlick on the right side of her hairline, a scar on her right eyebrow or eye area, uh, freckles, and uh, a gap between her two front teeth, like most nine-year-olds. 
Of course, there are photographs of her on those aforementioned websites. And there is also an age progression photo as well, if you want to go and take a look at that. Um, she was last seen wearing a maroon and white striped hooded shirt with the word gimme, spelled G-I-M-M-E, on the front. Um, she had maroon sweatpants and maroon and white tennis shoes on. But uh, I just got to say, <laughs> she obviously knew how to match. Uh, she had this maroon ensemble going on, and I got to give it to her. Uh, so on Monday, uh, October 11th, 1993, Stephanie's mom, Sandy, gave Stephanie a few dollars for a snack and sent her on her way to the local bowling alley. Stephanie had made plans after school that day to meet up with some of her friends to bowl a few games with her elementary school bowling league. The games finish and everyone starts to go about their separate ways. Uh, by some accounts, uh, they say it was around 4.45 when the games finish. Stephanie is leaving the bowling alley when a friend of hers sees her and offers her a ride home. Stephanie declines, saying that she had forgotten her backpack at the high school soccer field and she had planned to walk over there and get it. Um, the high school uh, was not very far from the bowling alley. I want to say it was like right across uh, the road. Um, some of her friends <clears throat> later told police that they think that she may have been going to watch soccer practice at that high school, uh, but it's really unknown. Some say that she might have just been walking home. The last time anyone has seen Stephanie was as she was waiting to cross Highway 93 to walk towards Chalice High School. And most accounts say it was approximately 6 p.m. when she was last seen. So, <clears throat> in the Crane household, it's getting later and later. And, of course, Stephanie's parents are getting concerned because she's not home. And so they decide to go out and look for her. Uh, they don't find her. They talk to a few, few kids, and they hadn't seen her since earlier when she left the bowling alley. And so then her parents start to think, well, maybe she had plans to sleep at a friend's house and she forgot to tell us. So they check with her friends. And of course her friends hadn't seen her and didn't know where she was. Um, so they can't find her. And it's between eight and 9 p.m. when Stephanie's parents uh, contact Custer County Sheriff's Office to report their daughter missing. Extensive searching was done for Stephanie following the report of her disappearance. In fact, multiple agencies and volunteers convened with four-wheelers, boats, horses, dogs, and they even searched with helicopters. But there was still no sight of Stephanie. In fact, uh, she was never to be seen again. Some valuable tips in Stephanie's um, 
case were reported in the days following her disappearance. Uh, police were told about a yellow truck with a red pinstripe that was seen parked in the parking lot of the high school around the time Stephanie was last seen. However, the witness was unable to get the license plate number or the make and model of the truck. Another possible vehicle sighting was called in to police. Um, this time it was regarding a blue van that was seen parked on the shoulder of that Highway 93, about a half a mile from the bowling alley on the same day Stephanie disappeared. Um, a convenience store clerk claimed uh, to have seen two men fighting nearby. However, police were never able to locate the men or the van. And of course, just like with the truck, no license plate or maker model information um, was obtained for the van. So let's fast forward just a little bit um, to 1997 when the Idaho Department of Fish and Game alerted the sheriff's office that a hunter, a hunter, I'm sorry, um, by the name of Keith Hescock was in custody for unlawful possession of wildlife or poaching, as it is also known. So while in custody, um, it was discovered that Hescock had been in Chalice during the time of Stephanie's disappearance and had been driving a yellow truck similar to the one seen at the local high school. Now I want you to keep Keith Hescock's name in mind because he's going to pop up later. Unfortunately, that truck uh, was never located and a search of Hescock's house provided no evidence. So while Hescock was still a person of interest, they had no evidence to charge him in Stephanie's disappearance. Now, let's talk about another potential suspect. So in the spring of 2000, police get a lead from an inmate in a correctional institute in Napa, Idaho who claimed a female friend of his had rented a home in a drifter's apartment, I'm sorry, had rented a room in a drifter's apartment uh, back in 1993. So the neighbors of this apartment uh, had heard the screams and cries of a young girl coming from the basement of the drifter's apartment. And I'm going to refer to him as a drifter or the drifter because he is a person of interest and the police have not released his name because the investigation is ongoing. So the female friend of this inmate um, had found the drifter's behavior uh, suspicious, especially because he refused to allow anyone to enter the basement. Now this female uh, she was a little uh, gutsy, and she decides to ask the drifter about the screams that were coming from the basement that everyone heard. Now, he tell, the drifter tells the female that he was just punishing his daughter for running away. So the female 
is like, there's something not right. And she decides to pack up her belongings and her children and get the heck out of Dodge. Uh, because it just wasn't sitting right with her and she had children and she didn't want to put them in a situation with a guy who was obviously, uh, his behavior was a little odd to her. So she's, she decides just to, to get out of the apartment, which is a good call on her part. I have to say, so please learn about this information and they're wondering like you and I are wondering could that girl that was screaming in the basement been Stephanie? Could it have been Stephanie? Right? I feel like this is a fair question. Um, so they begin to do some digging. And they look into the drifter's background. What they learn is that the drifter had been charged and convicted of sexual abuse. But... He had not served any time on that charge because he had accepted a plea deal that kept him out of prison. So please say he's looking good for this. He could be a person of interest and they decide, hey, <clears throat> let's bring him in. Let's question him. And that's exactly what they do. They bring him in. They question him and they say, hey, would you submit to a polygraph exam? And he says, yeah, okay. Now, what most everybody knows is that polygraph exams are not admissible in court because um, their validity is sometimes questioned. And I want you to keep that in mind. So the drifter takes a polygraph exam and you're never going to believe he fails. So police go, go to the drifter and they say, hey, guy, you failed. And he becomes enraged. He is mad. Now, is he mad because he's telling the truth and the polygraph is saying he's lying? Or is he mad because he is guilty and he obviously looks guilty and he doesn't like that? In any case, we may never know. The police say, well, maybe it's a good idea to go look at that basement where that girl might have been. And so they get a warrant and they execute the warrant and they're able to actually collect um, blood samples and uh, hair fibers. So they get the blood samples and the hair fibers back to the lab and the lab says, hey, Sorry, guys, uh, but we can't tell you if this blood is human or animal. Um, but we can definitely tell you that these hair fibers are human. The only issue is that these hair fibers don't have follicles. So we can't do any DNA testing. And the police, once again, are back at square one. So... <clears throat> They say, well, let's at least try and put him in the area of Chalice at the time of Stephanie's disappearance. And so what the police do is that they call a woman um, who was working at the bowling alley of the night of Stephanie's disappearance. And they say, hey, can you come in? 
we want to show you a picture lineup, see if you recognize anybody. And she says, yeah, okay. And she comes in, they show her a photograph lineup, and she, of course, picks out the drifter. The issue is that it has been several years since Stephanie has gone missing. And she cannot say with 100% certainty that she has seen this guy in the area near the time of Stephanie's disappearance. So she's not 100% confident about it. And the police say, well, that's not a uh, 100% um, irrefutable, irrefutable, you can't, it's not a lead that we can fucking, it's not evidence that we can bring and get a warrant on. So now they're once again back at square wrong, square one. I am sorry, guys. I'm getting tongue twisted. <laughs> so there's no evidence to, to prosecute the drifter. And so he has never been charged with anything, but he's still a person of interest. So uh, that's why his name is still not, hasn't been released. So a couple of years pass and in June of 2002, Keith Hescock, remember that name, pops back up in a pretty big way. See, Hescock, <laughs> he was in a lot of trouble uh, because he had kidnapped and raped a 14-year-old girl. And how do we know he, he did that? Well, because he had this poor 14-year-old girl handcuffed and chained in his house while he was at work. And she was able to escape and get help. So the police, they go to arrest him. But he ends up leading them on a 40-mile high-speed chase. The chase ends at a dead-end road in the Big Hole Mountains. Hescock ends up shooting uh, and killing a police canine. He wounds a police officer and eventually he turns the gun on himself and commits suicide. And anything that might have, he might have known about Stephanie's disappearance dies right along with him. It is also important to note that Hescock is a person of interest in the 2001 disappearance of 20-year-old Amber Sonnell Hoops. Now, she has a profile on the um, Charlie Project that is actually linked up with uh, Stephanie's. So if you wanted to find out more about her, uh, just go to Stephanie's profile and she has a link in there. So uh, in 2016, police conducted a new round of interviews um, with potential suspects. And they also conducted a new search in the Chalice area um, in an attempt to locate Stephanie. Uh, but the police have never released the results of uh, those interviews or that search. So maybe they found something, maybe they didn't. If they found something, they might not want everybody to know about it. Um, but maybe they didn't find anything at all. Because you got to keep in mind that several years had passed. So the odds of finding something are decreased with every year. 
So while police have several persons of interest, um, and I, on one article, it said over 200 persons of interest, uh, not including her family members, um, police still, they don't have enough evidence to make an arrest. So there's, there's no forward movement in Stephanie's case, unfortunately. But the good news about Stephanie's case is that it is far from forgotten. You see, Stephanie's case has been featured on America's Most Wanted and Investigation Discoveries uh, disappeared. Uh, She had an episode on season nine, and I believe it was called Into the Mist, if I'm not mistaken. Based on the amount of articles alone I found, it seems like her case is still being looked at. <clears throat> even after all these years and everyone still wants um, her to be found and they want answers. Um, Stories of unsolved.com has a really good workup of Stephanie's case. And while some of the information differs from other sites, um, it really did help me understand the timeline in the case. So if, if y'all want to do your own investigation, it's a really good article <clears throat> and it oh, hopefully it can help you understand the case a little bit more. Um, unfortunately, both of Stephanie's parents um, are now deceased. Um, they got a divorce a few years after Stephanie's disappearance. I believe her father died in 2012 and her mother died a few years before that. Um, the only comfort is that maybe her parents found answers and found peace in afterlife. Um, but unfortunately, Stephanie still does have siblings and people who care about her and they need answers. Um, so if anyone knows anything about Stephanie's disappearance or have seen anyone matching Stephanie's description, you can contact Custer County Sheriff's Office. <clears throat> Their information is on NamUs, the Doe Network, and Project Charlie. Uh, Stephanie's photos uh, are included on those websites as well, including that age progression photo um, of what she may look like now. <sighs> so that is the case of Stephanie. Lynn Crane, and I hope that they are close to answers for her family. Okay, uh, I know that was a lot, so take a little break if you need uh, before we get to the next case. There is not as much information on this case, but he is just as important, and I want to have so much information on this case. It really is a a mystery, Um, but there's just not a lot there. And when I tell you this story, you'll understand why. Um, But he still needs to be remembered because someone loves him and remembers him and wants answers and wants him home. Um, So just uh, stick with me. And I'm going to tell you this really short story, unfortunately, um, 
Full disclosure, though, when I went to double check my information in this case, the donetwork.org was down. So while I'm sure the same information is on the donetwork, I'm just going to tell you the story from other sources. Uh, so Kyle Frank uh, Tolley or Tolley, uh, last name spelled T-O-L-L-E-Y, um, should be in the Doe Network as case number 4502-DMID. Uh, in NamUs, he is case number MP2103. And he also has a profile on the Charlie Project. Uh, just a quick shout out to the Charlie Project, uh, to charlieproject.org. They seem to always have the most information thus far in my research. And they also have links to articles referring to the missing persons cases. They have made my research a whole lot easier thus far. Um, so I would recommend the Charlie Project. If you're wanting to look up any of these cases, look at the Charlie Project first because they have um, a lot of information on each person usually. So Kyle Tolley was born on July 19th of 1984 and he was last seen on August 17th of 2001 in Pine Flats, Idaho. He was 17 at the time of his disappearance. He, too, would be 35 now. Kyle is a white male with blonde hair and blue eyes. He was 5 foot 10 inches and about 185 pounds at the time of his disappearance. Uh, there are photographs of him online, and some photographs show him with longer hair. Um, some photographs have shorter hair. Uh, so if you wanted to go look at that, you could know what he looks like with um, both long and short hair. Uh, there is also an age progression photo uh, that shows what he might have looked like at 28. So you can get an idea of what he might look like now at 35. <clears throat> so on the morning of August 18th, 2001, Boise County Sheriff's deputies receive a call from Pine Flats Camp Post, where two campers have reported three guys who were, quote-unquote, really acting weird. Uh, the deputy arrives at the Hot Springs and ended up arresting two young men, quote-unquote, out of their minds, and believed to be under the influence of a hallucinogen. Uh, one of the two men was Kyle's brother, and the other was a friend. So about 400 yards away from the springs at the campground, the deputy ended up um, arresting a female uh, who was the wife of one of the two men. It's unclear of which men uh, she was married to. The female was also under the influence, but she was more coherent than the two men. So, Kyle, his brother, <clears throat> the male friend, and the female had all been at the campsite the night of the 17th, partying and using narcotics. Now, the only coherent subject at the time of their arrest, the female, claimed that Kyle, who wasn't found uh, at the time, had taken off on foot uphill to find the nearest McDonald's. Uh, that's un there's 
There's no actual report of what time she claimed that he left to go to McDonald's. I don't even know if she knew what time it was, if she was under the influence of narcotics, if this story is in fact true. So after the deputy books the three uh, people into the jail, he decides to go back to the campground uh, to retrieve the vehicle and look for Kyle. But he didn't find Kyle, but he found Kyle's wallet that still had $300 in cash in it. Now, if Kyle was going to McDonald's, I think he needs some money, but you know, if he was under the influence, he might not have been thinking that far. So Kyle was in fact never to be seen again. Uh, investigators initially thought that Kyle had simply hitchhiked out of the area. You see, huh, Kyle lived a quote unquote transient lifestyle which is why it is said that it took Kyle's family two years to report him missing that is the saddest part of this to me it took two years for him to be reported missing um, that is two years of evidence that was that could have been destroyed two years worth of witnesses who left and moved on and out of the area um, simply two years worth of time that could have really mattered in locating and searching for for Kyle but you can't go back now so He's reported after two years. He's tech, he's finally there's a missing persons report filed for him, but uh, nothing really happens for a long time. And I don't want to speculate, um, but it kind of seems like he, he was gone for two years, and you know it took somebody two years to report him missing. So maybe police thought that. You know, it wasn't very high on the priority list, so they just didn't initially do a lot of work in trying to find him. Because it, I'm pretty sure they thought that he just left town and he hadn't been in contact with people. I, I don't know. I, I really don't want to speculate, but uh, it just the, that seems the worst to me, that so much time was wasted. And then even more time was wasted after he was finally reported. But anyway... Uh, you could say that the case was open, but nothing is really said about the investigation of his disappearance until <clears throat> June 8th of 2013. See, that Saturday, almost 12 years after he was last seen, and 10 years, about 10 years since he was reported missing, 50 searchers and two cadaver canines searched the Pine Flats area for Kyle's remains. Uh, the cadaver dogs uh, indicated separately on uh, the same location of interest and bones were actually discovered. Well, I wouldn't be telling you this story if it had turned out to be Kyle's bones, now would I? They were actually deer bones the canines had indicated to. Now here we are in 2019, no closer to knowing what happened to Kyle on that August 17th night in 2001. 
um, than anybody was on that morning of August 18th of 2001. Now, I think uh, someone knows what happened to Kyle. Uh, and everyone can draw their own conclusions. Uh, but obviously, there is no evidence either way or he wouldn't still be listed as missing and people would have answers. So, uh, if you know anything about the whereabouts of Kyle Frank Tolley or any information that can help locate him, you can contact the Boise County Sheriff's Office and give them your information. Also, if you have the time, please look him up. Uh, find his picture, especially the age progression picture, um, because if he is still transient and he is still out there somewhere uh, and still alive, uh, he needs to know, people want to know he's okay and safe. So let's get him home. <clears throat> so that is the case of Stephanie Lynn Crane and Kyle Frank Tolley. Uh, Idaho really gave me some good ones this week and I had plenty of research to do and I really I really did want to tell y'all these two young people's story um, I feel like it's somehow always worse when the missing person is a child uh, because they have so much opportunity ahead of them and now we may never know what their futures would have been like um I'm sorry to tell y'all, though, if y'all hadn't drawn this conclusion already, um, unfortunately, there are no immediate happy endings to my stories. Uh, hopefully, somehow, though, we may create a happy ending by getting someone home, but there is no immediate satisfaction here, and I'm sorry about that, but I still hope you enjoyed it. Um, Anyways, uh, thanks everyone for listening to episode two. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I can't wait to have you back again uh, next week so I can tell you the story of two more missing persons. And I hope I can make it enjoyable for you. Um, and I hope this week's episode was better than uh, last week's episode. I'm really trying to get better at this, um, if you notice it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if you're going to continue to bear with me and hope that it gets even better, thank you for that. <laughs> so uh, that's this week's episode. And I'll see y'all back next week, hopefully. And I'll try and pick two more really good cases that'll, that'll make you wonder what happened. Um, but let's just, let's just try and make those that were never to be seen again, seen again. Uh, so bye everyone. I'll see y'all next week.